0: frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown american drink go to grown Superfood.com forward slash john and order today
1: okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com
0: This is Series XM Progress After Dark. It's nighttime in the USA. The last primaries of a tired primary season go down in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. A desperate senator who once impeached Bill Clinton proposes a desperate congressional Hail Mary pass. And the man who prosecuted the impeachment of Bill Clinton passes. This is Progress After Dark featuring Chris Houseel, Thea Harper, special guests Jonathan Darman, the author of Becoming FDR and our comedy daddy Keith Price. I'm John Fugelsang. Thanks for joining us here on the Love Fest. That is Tell Me Everything. We are at 866-997-GRIT. We are Progress After Dark. Unless you're listening on the Fuglesang podcast or on the App or on the on-demand in that case. Hello daywalkers. Uh, Welcome to our evil army of the night. We have a great great show What an incredible book about FDR we have to discuss tonight just think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you and now imagine if that could be the most incredibly transformative thing that ever happened and that wound up changing the world It's all about FDR and his diagnosis with polio and how that was what made him the leader America needed for the Great Depression and World War II. It's thrilling. I'm so, It's so inspiring. I'm so excited to talk to this author, especially because I have now watched all six and a half hours of Ken Burns' amazing new film, uh, The U.S. and the Holocaust, which will be premiering on the 18th of September. Ken is coming in uh, this week to do a town hall with us that will be airing right here on Friday and repeated uh, quite a bit here on XM. It's one of the most powerful films Ken Burns has ever made. He has said that he will never make a more important film than this. And if you love the Civil War, if you love baseball, jazz, the Roosevelt's, his other great films, his recent films he's done about Muhammad Ali and Benjamin Franklin, nothing will prepare you for the power of this movie. It's just great. And in fact, to get everyone excited tomorrow evening on the show, Naira Hawk is going to be filling in for a bit and then... We're going to bring you uh, an hour of Ken Burns talk just to whet your appetite when he joined us to discuss the Ben Franklin film uh, and when he joined us earlier this year to talk about his amazing movie on Muhammad Ali, which was the first Ken Burns movie which had an all contemporary soundtrack. It kind of blew my mind. So all night long, we're taking your calls at 866-997-4748. Also coming up this week, Julian Lennon returns to the show. He has a new album. And guess what? It's Great. It's so gorgeous. His new record is terrific. It's called Jude. After a certain song, Paul McCartney wrote about him when he was just a little boy. And we're so thrilled to have Julian return to our airwaves. Also, the sexy liberal, uh, what is it now? Stephanie Miller's sexy liberal Save Democracy Tour. That's what I'm doing and devoting my life to. We had an amazing show over the weekend in Washington, D.C. Thank you to everybody who came down. Thank you, Congressman Jamie Raskin, for joining us on stage. Uh, The next show will be Chicago, Saturday the 24th. We're very excited. Go to sexyliberal.com for tickets. Our special guests, well, this will be Stephanie Miller, Frangela, House Sparks, and me. Our special guests will include uh, Representative Jan Schakowsky and the great Jill Weinbanks. It's going to be such a drunken, hilarious, brilliant, moral, deeply moral party in Chicago. And then our last show of this little brief mini-tour for the fall is going to be in Los Angeles. At the Saban Theater, where we've recorded a couple times now. And that's going to be an all... I can't even tell you the names. We have some celeb names lined up for that one that I'm not even allowed to announce yet. I'm just going to say, LA's going to sell out hard. Chicago's going to sell out hard. Go to SexyLiberal.com. You do not want to miss the party of the midterm season. 866-997-4748. It's so glad to be with you. Let's do a show. After spending months saying they want to let the states decide... Senate Republicans introduced the bill today to ban abortion nationwide. Now, let, let's let's talk about this. There's a lot we have to get to tonight, and I'm going to be asking you guys to call in about this. And if you're one of our day walkers, please write to us, either at my website or the show's Facebook page. The Dobbs decision by the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the nearly 50 year old Roe v. Wade decision that said women have this constitutional right to uh, abortion. The Dobbs decision is historically unpopular, and it has catapulted so many women and men who respect women to register to vote in numbers we have not seen in years. It has completely upended the battle for Congress. The GOP was doing victory laps and picking out their wallpaper, and now... The Washington Post said last week, female voters who drifted away from the Democratic Party after the 2020 elections are shifting back. Democrats have overperformed in special elections and voters showed up in droves to reject a ballot measure in ruby red, Kansas, aimed at restricting abortion. Wall Street Journal earlier this month said 60 percent of voters said abortion should be legal in all or most cases, up from 55 percent in March. Which brings us to Lindsey Graham, who never in his life met an unpopular decision he couldn't wrap his arms around. Why is he introducing a national abortion ban right now? Why? 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 Why would he do this to distract everyone from how corrupt and and criminal Trump is to to, to rally the right wing folks who aren't already excited to make it look like Lindsey Graham's doing something? (laughs) Well, um... Whatever his reasoning is, it's going to make a lot more voters realize that women's rights are on the line November 8th, more than realized it before today. The text was released that we've known this was coming for a while and it would ban abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is down from 20 weeks which has been there in previous versions of the bill. It does provide exemptions for rape, incest, and cases necessary to save the life of a pregnant woman. The bill also leaves in place state laws that are more protective of unborn life. So, (laughs) Lindsay introduces this today, and the only people happy about it, the only people happy about it are Democrats. We'll get to that. But he said, you know, Democrats trying to pass national abortion protections to not put women in jail to codify Roe v. Wade. Well, that's what motivated him to introduce this bill. See, the Democrats are trying so hard to do something that's so popular. Lindsey thought it'd be great if he tried to do something incredibly shitty that's not popular. He kept on saying over and over again that this is fairly consistent with the rest of the world. (laughs) But he also said he thinks he can get some Democrats to vote for it as well. Here's Lindsey Graham unveiling his new Senate bill. And guys, there's no way to overstate how much this has already blown up in his face. Here's Lindsey making it a midterm promise that he will make sure women go to jail if they have abortions after 15 weeks.
1: So I look forward to the debate. I look forward to the vote. If we take back the House and the Senate, I can assure you we'll have a vote on our bill. If the Democrats are in charge, I don't know if we'll ever have a vote on our bill. (laughs) Thank you. And I'll turn it back over.
0: He's trying so hard to unite the Republicans around a common position, but banning second trimester abortions. I mean, it's not like that many abortions happened in the second trimester. And you're not going to find anybody who's a big fan of second trimester abortions. God knows. No fans of it out there. But you know what? We're not fans of even more so putting women in jail. The bill uses this non-medical phrase, late-term abortion. Doctors don't say that. And the bill promises to protect pain-capable unborn children. Democrats are the ones who see doctors as trusted voices. Democrats are getting more and more doctors to do campaign ads to help in the political fight against abortion laws by convincing the voters that the Republican policies aren't really medically sound. I mean, after the Supreme Court Overthrew Roe v. Wade. Lindsay said the ruling was a long overdue constitutional correction allowing for elected officials in the states to decide the issues of life. So, again, right, like two months ago, Lindsey Graham was all for that. And now, well, it's almost like Lindsey Graham likes it both ways, folks, because today... He struck a very different position on the role of the states. Abortion is not banned in America, he said. It's left up to elected officials to define the issue. And we have the ability in Washington to speak on the issue if we choose. I have chosen to speak. Yeah, it's all about Lindsey Graham. 57%. Of Americans oppose a ban at 15 weeks, that's from a Wall Street Journal poll. That left-wing rag. Now, for months, Democrats and us here on this show and all the great shows on SiriusXM Progress, they've been talking. We've been talking, warning you, Lindsey Graham, Republicans. They're going to, they're going to push for a national abortion ban, taking away states' rights, and they'll keep on doing it because states' rights is not something Republicans believe in. Say that again. I'm going to say that again. It bears repeating. Republicans don't believe. In states rights, not when it comes to abortion, not when it comes to cannabis, not when it comes to regulating firearms. The only time Republicans ever talk about states rights, the only time is when they've been called out for their racism. And with this new version of a bill, just weeks, now we're 56 days, 56 days before an election, Democrats don't have to talk about what they might do. They're doing it. He said, if we take back the House and the Senate, I can assure we'll have a vote. Here's some more of Lindsey Graham. They asked him about his recent remarks calling a state-by-state approach to abortion access the preferred and most sound option. Lindsey, wh- why are you flip-flopping on this?
2: You, you stated that the repeal of the road Wade would mean that every state will decide if abortion is legal and on what terms, And you said that, that was the most constitutionally sound way mm-hmm. of dealing with it. And here you are introducing a nationwide petition. Yeah. I'm wondering how you square those two
1: statements. Pretty easy. After they introduced the bill to define who they are, I thought it'd be nice to introduce a bill to define who we are. So
0: Redefine.
1: Redefine.
0: You craven, pathetic liar. Redefine. You notice he didn't answer the question, why did you say this then and now you're doing this? Well, because they define themselves, so I want to read. No. Just, just Democrats, start sending Lindsey Graham gift baskets, please please. (laughs) Democrats didn't waste any time on this one. Um, Nora Keefe, the uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee spokesperson said Senate Republicans are showing voters exactly what they would do if they are in charge, pass a nationwide abortion ban and strip away women's right to make our own health care decisions. The stakes of protecting and expanding our Democratic Senate majority in November has never been higher. Chuck Schumer said, very simple, if you want to protect the right to choose and you want to protect a woman's right to health care, vote for more Democratic senators. You want to have a nationwide abortion ban? Vote for MAGA Republicans. And they just kept piling on all day. Mondaire Jones, great congressman from New York, said Lindsey Graham just said the quiet part out loud. The right to an abortion is on the ballot this November. I think we already knew that, but boy... (laughs) Oh, now, in fairness, you know what Republicans uh, ran to Lindsey Graham's defense? Uh, None. None. And they asked Lindsey, have you spoken to Mitch McConnell about this bill you're introducing? And Lindsey Graham said no. But let me tell you something, folks. By this hour, I think he wishes he did. Here's Mitch McConnell when they asked him, hey, Mitch, if you guys take control of the Senate, will you bring Lindsey's bill to a vote?
3: Lindsey Graham has his
0: 15-week abortion ban. If you take up take the Senate, will you put this on the floor of the Senate for a vote, or will you commit to leaving this issue entirely to the
4: states? Well, with regard to his bill, you'll have to ask him about it. In terms of scheduling, I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level.
0: Hmm. That's it. That was the plan right? Like they know how unpopular it is. And here's why they're furious. Because today was, of course, the big signing of the Inflation Reduction Act. It wasn't a good day for inflation. This morning, the latest consumer price index report said inflation is still on the rise, even though gas prices fell dramatically last month, prices of other goods and food is still going up. This should have been the slam dunk message of the GOP, right? I mean, Democrats should have been rallying to defend Joe Biden. We should have been going through all the whole well. The president doesn't control inflation talking point. No, we don't have to do that today. Politically, it wasn't even in the game because Lindsey Graham complete. And even here's how dumb Lindsey Graham is. And he's quite dumb, folks. You know, he's a prison punk. You know, a prison punk finds someone to take care of him, keep him safe. Used to be McCain. Then it was Trump. Lindsey Graham presumably had a chance to check the news today and see the Consumer Price Index, to see that this is the day you're supposed to beat up Biden for inflation. He's literally having this ceremony. The story was forgotten. Lindsey Graham's announcement got more ink in the press today than Biden's signing ceremony. And the Republicans are furious. Uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia said, I'm not sure what he's thinking here. This is a Republican. I don't think there will be a rallying around that concept. I mean, think about how many women and all the young people that are registering to vote. And it's happening in large part because of this issue, partially Trump and partially abortion. And again, this is their real intention, folks. They keep saying they believe in states' rights. They don't. They don't believe in states' rights. The Bill of Rights would never pass the current Republican Senate. They believe in controlling women's bodies. They believe in criminalizing abortion. They don't believe in states' rights. Again, that's just something they say when they get called out for being racist. The Daily Wire said, what a great way to energize the opposition against your own party just weeks before an election. Absolutely. Now, the number of Senate Republicans who have signed on to Lindsay's abortion bill... Ah, none. None. In fact, there was a 20-week ban that Congressman Chris Smith introduced last April. The same premise. You ban abortions when they think the fetus becomes pain-capable. That had more than twice as many co-sponsors as Lindsey Graham's 15-week bill. Right? The less harsh abortion ban was more popular because the Republicans know how unpopular banning abortion is. Now, let's talk about someone else behind the Clinton impeachment, because, again, my biggest sticking point on Lindsey Graham for all of the hypocrisies, all the lies, all the flip flops, all the I mean, all the craven groveling before men he hates. Lindsey Graham first got on our national radar when, as a young congressman, he was one of the impeachment managers against President Bill Clinton for Bill Clinton's unholy crime of not wanting the world to know that he got oral sex from a 20-year-old intern. That's what launched Lindsay's career. Now, most of the people who were impeachment managers are out of politics now. Very few stayed in Congress, but Lindsay has flourished and been promoted. Which brings us to Ken Starr, another hero of the Bill Clinton impeachment. The former president of Baylor University who earned nationwide notoriety as the independent counsel who ran the investigation that led to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Ken Starr died today. He was also on Donald Trump's team when his impeachment went before the Senate. Ken Starr was a Reagan appointee. And again, most famous for his role in the Whitewater investigation. I still don't even like calling it a scandal because the Clintons were cleared of wrongdoing in Whitewater. The whole thing, the whole thing was fishing. They looked into Whitewater, Travelgate, Vince Foster, Filegate, couldn't find anything. He needed a scandal. They tried to arrange it. Paula Jones walked in and said, he did this to me, and that opened the door. It was, had nothing to do with what he was originally investigating, which was Bill Clinton's real estate dealings in Arkansas. Instead, they set up a perjury trap, asked him about a girlfriend no one was supposed to know about. Bill Clinton famously did what he did and lied. And if you're old enough to remember, we had about a year of headlines and had to listen to endless discussions about oral sex. It was a good time to be an American. We have Ken Starr to thank for that. He died today of complications from surgery at St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston. He was 76 years old. He served as U.S. Solicitor General under George H.W. Bush. He was a U.S. uh, Circuit Judge. He was a Counselor and Chief of Staff to U.S. Attorney General William French Smith. He was also a law professor of 25 years, a dean of Pepperdine Law School over there in L.A., and, of course, famously the President and Chancellor of Baylor University. Now, again, you know, he was the one who made Monica Lewinsky a household name. All the abuse that Monica Lewinsky went through. I don't blame Bill Clinton for it. What Bill Clinton did was wrong. Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, however, were consenting adults, they were doing something that was not nice. They were doing something you should not do. But it was between them. It was between Bill Clinton's wife. Monica Lewinsky is a household name. Because Ken Starr made sure she got famous because he had nothing looking into real estate investments. And then suddenly it's this huge inquiry into this affair with Monica Lewinsky. And his report led to the impeachment. Now, um, you might think that would have been his lowest point in his career. But no, in 2007, Ken Starr joined Jeffrey Epstein's legal team. And he defended everybody's favorite convicted sex offender and child rapist. He defended... Jeffrey Epstein against charges of trafficking, against charges of felony prostitution, and it resulted in a 13-month work-release plea deal for all of his abusive underage girls. The next year, you know what he did the next year? In 2008, Ken Starr represented Prop 8 supporters to try to end same-sex marriage in California. Ken Starr, out of the goodness of his own morality, did everything he could to render 18,000 marriages of Americans who happened to be gay to render those marriages illegitimate. He's quite a guy. Impeached a man for lying about a consensual blowjob that had nothing to do with whitewater. The Clintons were the victims, not the perpetrators. Six years of investigations, zero convictions. There's a word for that, right? There's a word for that. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Witch hunt. You think, how could he top it? How could he top it? Well, he came to be on Donald Trump's legal team for Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Here's a little clip of Ken Starr explaining why impeachment is really, really bad when you do it to a Republican.
4: The Senate is being called to sit as the high court of impeachment all too frequently. Indeed, we're living in what I think can aptly be described as the age of impeachment. In the House, resolution after resolution month after month has called for the president's impeachment. How did we get here with presidential impeachment invoked frequently in its inherently destabilizing as well as acrimonious way? Like war, impeachment is hell, or at least presidential impeachment is hell those of us who live through the clinton impeachment Hello. including members of this body full well understand that a presidential impeachment is tantamount to domestic war albeit thankfully protected by our beloved first amendment a war of words and a war of ideas but it's filled with acrimony and it divides the country like nothing else Oh, those Does of us house. who live through the Clinton impeachment understand that L- live d- through the Clinton impeachment way. like a bystander now in contrast wisely and judiciously conducted unlike the United Kingdom impeachment remains a vital and appropriate tool in our country to serve as a check with respect to the federal judiciary
0: okay that's uh You know, I I, I struggle with this, friends, because I don't believe in saying mean things about someone who's died. I I just I I have compassion for his family as as odious as we may find his professional life. There are people who loved him. There's children who loved him. There's people who are weeping tonight because they loved him so much. He was only 76. I mean, everyone deserves to live longer than that. And it's awful to die during surgery. I, I, I wish Ken Starr a peaceful transition. I hope if there is a heaven that he goes there, that he finds peace and love and a comfort he denied others. I, I, I really struggled all day with like how to approach it, not to have hate in my heart because you can't. Hate just makes you stupid. But you know, Ken Starr not long ago had an interview with the New York Times And he had nothing but lovely things to say about Bill Clinton, who he spent years trying to destroy. Again, he was hired to investigate Whitewater, but he really wasn't. He was hired to destroy Bill Clinton and looked into any way he could possibly do it. Famously, Juanita Broderick, the woman who accused Bill Clinton of rape. Ken Starr interviewed her, but he decided she was not credible. That's why you never heard her name once during that impeachment proceeding. Ken Starr was hired to take down a Democratic president who had been reelected in the second term. He was there to destroy him. And now he refers to all that time as the unpleasantness. He called Bill Clinton the most gifted politician of the baby boomer generation. And he he said his post-presidential work was uh, redemptive. He said President Carter set a very high standard, which President Clinton clearly continues to follow. And of course, yeah, Baylor University... He played a significant role in covering up sexual assault. And then he joined Donald Trump's legal team. What's that like? I mean, you go from covering up rape, defending Jeffrey Epstein, and then defending Trump. That's the impeachment where Donald Trump tried to blackmail President Zelensky of Ukraine. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I want to be as positive as possible. But I was watching the footage earlier today of Ken Starr praising Donald Trump in the impeachment. Praising him. And I thought, my God there it is. Ken Starr went from impeaching a president for fellatio to performing fellatio on an impeached president. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls on Sirius XM.
3: Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Raitt, just to name a few. All hail old women, wiser than me. Season two is out now from Lemonada
1: Media. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available.
0: Welcome back. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. So good to have you with us again. Tonight's the primaries, the last primaries of the year, New Hampshire and Rhode Island. We'll be giving you updates as they come in. One interesting thing, if you look at the uh, great state of New Hampshire, retired Army General Don Bolduc is uh, running. He's a big Donald Trump Big lie pusher, pushes a lot of uh, conspiracies. He called Chris Sununu, who is quite right wing, the governor. uh, He called him a Chinese communist sympathizer. Yeah, that guy. Um, If he wins in the New Hampshire race against uh, state Senate President Chuck Morris, the Democrat, uh, the Republican, rather, and gets the nominee, he will be the newest candidate that will be viewed as a threat to Republicans' chances of retaking the Senate. It's just incredible. I know Democrats have given him a lot of help, and it's very controversial, and it's not like Democrats invented this idea this year. It's always existed. Shucks, back in 2016, everyone said, oh, go for, uh, go for Trump. Let's hope it's Trump and not Jeb Bush who could beat Hillary. But uh, wow, Republicans, you have managed to elect the far-right kooks all over the place. It's like 2010. It's like 2012. If Herschel Walker and if Blake Masters, if J.D. Vance... If Dr. Oz, if they get a new friend to the playground (laughs) in the MAGA world, Don Bolduc, just fine. Once, once that Senate majority seemed a lock. But thanks to you guys nominating people like this. Thanks to your Supreme Court gutting Roe v. Wade. Thanks to senators like Lindsey Graham thinking, hey, you know what? Let's let's make it even harder for women. Shucks You might just give the Democrats A a bigger majority Than they've had in quite a while We want to know What you guys think We're at 866-997-4748 We're doing open phones This hour Uh, In the next hour We're going to do a deep dive On Franklin Roosevelt Uh, But it'll be fun Trust me David in Nevada Thanks for your patience
3: Well Your new nickname John is John the Truth Serum Bugle
0: I'll take it Thank you
3: (laughs) Yes Now for all of the million of uh, progressive listeners and Urban View listeners, let's get down to the marrow in the bone.
0: Thanks for grouping Donald those two Trump sets of listeners together, by the way. Those are my favorite audiences at this company. Go on.
3: Yes. Uh, look, Donald Trump is broke. This motherfucker, mm-hmm. this mug ain't got two nickels to rub together. Yep. You know, when we sit back and we look at him, we already, and even though the mainstream media don't want to, they got damn good investigative reporters that know Donald Trump is broke. Okay? Oh, now, yeah. We went on the right wing radio and told them, oh, if I'm elected president again, I'm going to give those January 6th trader seditionists, SOBs, you know, pardons and formal apostasy. Matter of fact, I'm even paying for. Their uh, attorney's fees, number one, Donald. Trump yeah. You can't even. Which, afford- by the way, he
0: could he could have pardoned them. He could have pardoned them before he left last year. But go on.
3: Yeah, but you know how that how it goes, John. You know Donald Trump. You using uh, attorneys from the Three Stooges? You know, called Do We Cheat Them and How.
0: <laughs> I remember you know? that. Yes.
3: And you know, uh, uh, people have to look at it. Donald Trump only took the, all that top secret stuff for one thing—to sell it. He's over two billion dollars in debt.
0: Correct. That's i what mean, alleg- know, allegedly, ale- allegedly, two billion dollars in debt. If you believe the Deutsche Bank whistleblowers, right. go on.
3: Right, and we notice uh, Ivanka and, and 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 Jared Kushner. You know, Jared get two billion to Ivanka. Uh, you know, I'm not lonely. your one quarter of this.
0: Funny month, how that happens, nothing. huh? Funny how that happens. Now, do you think you think that MBS gave that two billion dollars to Jared against the advice of his own aides, by the way? They were like, oh, wait, you want to hack an American journalist to death uh, and try to cover it up? Okay, go ahead. But wait, two billion for Jared Kushner, your your highness. No. Do you think that that it was that simple, that that was a quid pro quo? For helping them get away with murder or or could could the Saudi royal family be the people who were allowed to see nuclear secrets about a certain foreign nation? That's what gets me. We don't know whose nuclear secrets Trump took. Makes a lot of sense if it might have been, oh, I don't know, a country like Israel that a lot of other nations might like to know about.
3: Right. Well, see, that that's what it is. But everybody, like I said, the mainstream media just told everybody truth. He's broke. Now, this is the only man who's pulling the con again, that's holding rallies, bilking people out of millions of dollars, and he didn't even announced he'd be running for president.
0: Preach.
3: Yeah, unheard of.
0: Yeah. Of. Yeah, and, and again, again, the Deutsche Bank whistleblowers said that his debt was staked by Russia. That that it was actually, you know, Putin owns his two billion dollar debt. Now, I'm not saying I believe that as a fact. None of it's been proven. I'm just saying it makes a lot of behaviors over the last six years make a lot of sense.
3: Exactly, John. And real quick to to Lindsey Graham, please. All Democrats and independents, and my good old friends my closet Republicans that are going to go out come November 8th, and they're going to pull the lever for Democrats. See, you have to remember, when Donald Trump won in 2016, as well as the amount of votes he got in 2020, it didn't really come from those crazy-ass evangelist Christian Republicans. It came from those lower-middle-class and middle-class white women. But now they're looking at their daughter and, like, wait a minute, if my daughter has a, uh, gets pregnant by, you know, that kooky, long-haired, hippie-type pico you know, as they used to say, uh-uh, no, I want her to have an abortion. And we can't afford to send her over to Europe or France, even into Mexico or Canada. So right. they're going to pull the lever for Democrats. Now, real quick, thank you, Lindsey Graham. Let's put this on our big billboard. Yes. The GOP is elected. Let's see. They have told us they will. Automatically get rid of abortions. Number two, mm-hmm. they're going to take over Social Security for senior citizens. Number three, they're going to make sure there is no Fair uh, Voting Rights Act or the John Lewis Act. Number four, That's right. we're going to make sure that you have no type of environmental protection for your children and your That's children's right. Preach. children. Preach. Love this. Let's do up the big billboard and say, Thank you, because these people have told us up front and on paper several times with their game plan. Oh, let's not forget my veteran brothers and sisters who were part of the burn pit that the GOP voted not to give them any compensation. That's for that. Thank for you. Going so, Thank you. All of you who are listening to John, the truth serum, Fugelstein, and his uh, (laughs) beautiful guests and his production crew, (laughs) David in Nevada has just told y'all, November 8th, we will get four to five senators. We will have a major majority in the House, and then we're going to tell President Biden, Mr. President, here are your four supreme court justices nice. will put on this court and you will oh now you're just
0: this. now you're just sharing porn with us now this is all just pornography it's beautiful yeah, that's <laughs> i'd I'm I'm love to do. see four uh, more supreme court justices that would be wonderful
3: so we're gonna get it we have to because in order for the judicial system as well as the supreme court to get any type of honor Dignity, respect, and most of all, the upholdment of the only positive law of the land, the Constitution of the United States of America. The only way to right this ship is to go on ahead, and we're now going to put this back like it should be with four more justices on the court so that they can overturn a lot of dumb shit, and they can stop states from coming to them with these dumb-ass Uh, uh, (laughs) voter restrict, uh, redistricting bullshit coming with this. Uh, OK, I got I got
0: to run, David. I love everything you're saying. I'm like sitting here cheering on my couch. I love it. I'm with you. I will I will I will vote for you and I will read your pamphlet. Thank you. You got me doing the wave in here. Don't be a stranger. OK, I want your energy on the show more as we get a closer and closer to Election Day. 56 days to go. Thank you for getting me fired up tonight. Quick, quick break. When we come back. Oh, my God. You know, I didn't think I could read another great book about FDR. But wait till you read jonathan darman's becoming fdr it is a transformative book regardless of your ideology we'll be right back on sirius xm
2: man that sunset is gorgeous
3: grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in
2: oh burger time
1: That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Okay, time now to talk about, well, one of our greatest presidents, And uh, a story about American history that transcends partisan ideology and even transcends history. Um, And it is the incredible story of a struggle, the struggle of Franklin Roosevelt's life that created his character and forged his entire political ascent. After he got polio 101 years ago, when he was only 39. A man who had failed in a race to be vice president was, of course, left paralyzed from the waist down. And he spent much of the next 10 years trying to adapt to what his life was going to be and going through a lot of turmoil that most of us hopefully will never, ever have to face. And by the time he came out on the other end of that tunnel, near the end of the 1920s, as a Democratic candidate for governor of New York, the man had been completely Transformed. Well, Jonathan Darman is the author of Landslide, LBJ, and Ronald Reagan at the Dawn of a New America. He's a former correspondent for Newsweek, where he covered national politics, including John Kerry and uh, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. His new book, Becoming FDR, is all about what it took for a man to not just cope with an incredible loss, but to transform himself and become a leader less than a decade after a terrifying medical diagnosis was able to tell an entire nation not to be afraid. It is a great pleasure to welcome Jonathan Darman to the show. Hello, sir.
2: Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Thank
0: you so much. I love this book. I love that you chose to take on this chapter of FDR's life. I, I think it is um, not just the most noble part of his of his life and service, but certainly the most gripping. and And something that I think is a human story everyone can draw inspiration of. You, you write in the book that even though FDR was um, a privileged child of the American aristocracy, uh, years of illness and convalescence had taught him what it felt like to be forgotten, humiliated, and overlooked as unimportant. It's a level of empathy that most millionaires at birth will never get. And this happened to a millionaire at birth who became our greatest president. What was it, sir, that first inspired you to take on this incredible chapter of Roosevelt's life?
2: You know, I I actually didn't set out to write a book about polio. I set out to write a book about FDR's presidency um, because I was interested in this topic of hope. Um, How does a president inspire it in a meaningful way that people really believe in uh when when he's leading the country through dark times and fdr is the best example we have of that Um, the country was facing peril that in many ways was greater than what we face today and yet somehow he was able to form this bond with the american people and convince them that things were going to be all right and they could do big things and that seems so elusive to us a lot of times. Um, I, I wrote this book through the Trump presidency. Um, and, and you know, that was just a very present question for me is where does hope come from? So I thought that I would, you know, do the book about the FDR presidency and I would do polio in like half a chapter because I thought sort of going into this, you know, I knew a fair amount about FDR. I thought the significance of his polio was what did he do to sort of you know, hide his condition from the public and deceive the public? And it was only when I really started to reckon with that question of how did he form that bond with the American people, that I realized the polio story is at the heart of it. And the polio story, as I saw it, was, was completely different from what I had thought. It's, it is, as you were saying, the thing that really makes all of the greatness of the Roosevelt presidency. Before he had polio, FDR had a whole career in politics, and he was a charming politician, a charismatic politician, but he was also shallow and vain, and he didn't really have a sort of tactile understanding of what it meant to suffer and what it meant to need hope. And it's Mm. only when his life gets turned upside down at age 39 and he loses his sort of plan for where things are going, in his life and he needs something new to believe in, that he's forced to develop all these new qualities like empathy and like strategic thinking and like this sort of genius for inspiring and sustaining hope that are gonna yes. make him a great president. And, um, and a, So a that sort of became my whole book, yeah. And a genius for empathy. When you think of
0: you know politicians who were millionaires at birth and then become so devoted to helping the less fortunate, I think in the last 100 years, I think FDR and I think Robert Kennedy, I mean, those are the first names that that spring to mind. But I I find it fascinating. You began this book uh, 102 years ago in 1920, when young Franklin was plotting his his bid to become the VP candidate of the Democratic Party. You know, my dad was a history teacher and Roosevelt was revered in our home. I went to his home in, uh, in Hyde Park several times as a kid and watched a lot of documentaries about him, really grew up, you know, as a fan. And I grew up with the FDR we all know as the president. Those who were born after that time know this man on tape who is so charming, who is so articulate, who is so able to go after his enemies in the most uh, engaging, endearing ways. We don't really think of him as shallow or untested. It was really fascinating for me to to get a glimpse of this man without his charm, without his charisma, and really without the, I guess, the panache that came after enduring all this suffering.
2: I think that's right. Um, he was someone who, you know, you talk about privilege and how that sort of may have blinded him. I think he thought things would always work out for him in life because up to the point where he got polio, most things always had. Um, He could just sort of show up places and things worked well for him. He got on the 1920 Democratic ticket um, as the vice presidential candidate. It was a losing ticket, Um, largely because at the Democratic convention, people liked the way he looked leaping over rows of chairs. Um, And they thought, you know, that's the kind of guy that looks like he could be a president someday. Um, So he'd never really been forced by life to to sort of be a be a better version of himself and you saw that and i mean that that figure was also quite surprising to me the sort of pre-polio fdr and i think the most vivid example of it is is the way that he sort of takes for granted his wife um i spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time talking about that in the book about the lucy mercer affair he of course cheated on and humiliated eleanor roosevelt by having an affair with her social secretary lucy mercer um but really i think in a lot of ways you see his his sort of shortcomings in that period because he fails to see who Eleanor Roosevelt really is and the and the uh, you know tremendous asset that she can be for him and it and that's that's another great thing that comes out of out of the polio years well and it's also
0: worth noting that you know Eleanor discovered the affairs before he contracted polio and yet their relationship deepened i mean w- you you look at when he contracted polio and he was a guy who had just lost this incredible president vice presidential bid he was already at a low point in his life when this devastating uh, contraction of this virus happened to him i mean he was already in a low place and then suddenly he's paralyzed from the waist down
2: yeah and i think you know something that was that was really interesting for me about that moment is he forms this connection really early on with other people who have polio um yes and that that it comes about sort of as a consequence of spin um so they he gets polio in the summer in the late summer of 1921 it's announced to the press in the middle of september and they say that he has infantile paralysis which is what polio was known as at that time but that you know he's going to make a really a full and swift recovery um and that you know was a not true but B, causes a big stir for other people who had polio or who had family members who had polio. And they wrote him letters saying, you know, what did you do? I want I, to you know, can you give me advice on, on on the rehabilitative process that you that you pursued? You know, because this this is this would be helpful to me. And FDR, to his credit, writes back to these people and he's much more frank with them about what he's what his condition actually is and what he's learned um, which is helpful because he has access to great medical specialists in a way that other people might not have. But other polio patients actually write offering him advice. Um, there, there's one letter I always think about where this a man who was a railroad worker um, and had gotten polio and was fully paralyzed and spent seven years in a hospital, wrote FDR a letter, and he talked about the ways that shame and fear and anger had impeded his recovery. And he said, Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't worry. It won't help any. And I read those (laughs) words and I see a direct line from that to the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. It's
0: also just incredible to think that when he goes to Warm Springs and he begins having these these treatments in the baths, the people he's surrounded by the other polio patients they're not all millionaires at birth either. I mean, he had an immersion into empathy and suddenly being around poor people that would never cross his path in his social set, and they were equals as patients. There's no way really to overestimate how humbling this experience, not just the physical and emotional
2: challenges, but how humbling for this child of privilege this terrible disease was. It's so, you know, he's drawn to Warm Springs in, in the fall of 1924 because it's supposed to be this sort of magical place where the waters have these curative, mystical powers. And he really needs something like that at that point, because it's been three years and he still hasn't regained the ability to walk. And I think there is a certain magic to Warm Springs, but it's really in the way that it just completely changes and takes over FDR's thinking. So as soon as he gets there, he, he finds it's sort of this ramshackle place, but he gets in the water and it does feel kind of magical to him. But one of his first thoughts is it's a shame that it should be only for me. Yep. And from that point on, he's thinking about Warm Springs as not just a place that can help him, but a place that he can help others. And, you know, you see it like he goes back to New York that winter He's writing. Uh, there's uh, he has a correspondence with another polio patient, a young man who's talking about how he's sort of depressed. He's at Columbia University, and he says, like, he's talking about how the doctors there don't really understand, and it's hard for him to get around. and FDR says, "Why don't you come down to Warm Springs, Georgia? I think you, I think it would really work for you. You know, there's there's the people are really nice there. There's this there's a whole place that you the, where you can really get help. And from that point on, it's sort of the center of his life. And I think. It's just so key to understanding what he achieves as president, because it's really in a lot of ways the place where he's he's developing all these principles about how you encourage hope and talk about hope in a way that people believe in and that, they, and that you can sustain over over the long term. and it, And it has yes. real practical implications for him.
0: You, you quote uh, Francis Perkins, his labor secretary, his people forget FDR had a woman in his cabinet, but how she said he had a a youthful lack of humility, um, a streak of self-righteousness and a deafness to the hopes, fears and aspirations, which are the common lot. It really seems that the, the empathy wasn't just a way for him to cope or it wasn't just him becoming a good person. It seems like the empathy was also the beginning of him completely refining his political skills.
2: Uh, I, th- I think that's that's very astute. And you think about the moment, too. It's the 1920s. It's the roaring. It's the roaring 20s. And other people all around FDR, you know, are are focused on their own personal consumption. And they're it's not partying that hard. like he did. They're, they're having yeah. a good time like he did his whole life. Yeah, exactly. But he instead has this thing in polio that sort of removes him from the world um, in, a, in, a, in a way that can feel quite tragic but it allows it creates sort of a void in which he he starts thinking about things in a completely new way you know louis howe um his his political advisor uh who was this sort of really important figure in this in this period in sort of helping along fdr's transformation He looked back on what FDR got in those years of convalescence, and he said a year or two in bed should be prescribed for all of our statesmen. And (laughs) and I think think that's right in a certain way. I mean, you know, God forbid, we don't we wouldn't wish what FDR had to go through on anyone. Um, But that experience of sort of stepping outside of what you thought was going to be your life and having to and having to look at the world differently and think about what other people's suffering is like is like, and is just incredibly enlightening.
0: It seems like it wasn't one lightning bolt moment, but a very gradual process for FDR to begin to realize, if you will, his mission in life, that that really not just being a politician, but being a servant of the public took on a whole new definition for him because of this awful disease. It just it just seems that it it didn't just make him deeper,
2: but it made his marriage deeper as well. That's right. I mean, and you know, working on Eleanor's story in this period was was some of the most fun that I had because her transformation is in a lot of ways even more dramatic than Franklin's. How so? So in the well, and you know, you look at the early period before polio and she's she's almost unrecognizable to those of us who think we know Eleanor Roosevelt. She's 35 years old. She's, you know, heartbroken in the wake of that Lucy Mercer affair that we were talking about. But she's also just sort of more broadly, like quite timid and frightened of the world. And she has no sense that she sort of has a public calling. So, you know, there's a moment in the 1920 campaign where a reporter comes to her and says, you know, what do you think about women's suffrage, which is a big issue of the time. And she says, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. Personally, I'm content with my husband and my children. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt. Wow. um, Unreal. Unreal. It's it is, you know, but within three years from then or four years or five years, she's going to be one of the most consequential women in American politics, totally independent from her husband. She's going to have her own power base. She's going to have her own political agenda, which is in a lot of ways quite radical. Um, And she's going to be talking about how women, if they want to be taken seriously, they need to organize themselves and they need to be ruthless and asserting themselves so that men don't take them for granted. And all of that comes about because in a lot of ways, because of polio, Um, because as Franklin is off pursuing his convalescence, there's this need for someone to be representing the, the family in the public sphere. And Eleanor takes that role and very quickly she discovers that the big world of sort of ideas and action is the place that she was always meant to be. So it's really moving to see her discovering her true self at the same time as, as he's doing it on, somewhere completely it's removed amazing, from.
0: It's amazing to think how much it transformed both both of them individually. And yet marriage-wise, I mean, their union certainly went through some changes, but he didn't become a faithful husband just because he was paralyzed from the waist down, did he?
2: I think what's what's... Interesting. I mean, you know, it's not a totally tidy story. If it were, if no. it were just a melodrama, he would say, "Oh, Eleanor, I'm so sorry for everything I've done, and we'll form the perfect, you know, romantic union." But no, of course not. Yeah, it's a lot they, more interesting than that. It's a lot more interesting than that. They reinvent their marriage so that it's it's not conventional by anyone's imagination. They spend most of the time in these years apart from one another, and she still sort of has this this rage toward him that she never fully lets go of. And it sort of bubbles up in these like occasional delicious moments. So like when he returns to to the political stage in, in 1928 and runs successfully for governor of New York the day after the election, it, reporters are, are asking Eleanor about it and, and they say, Are you happy? And she says, How could I be happy when the rest of the ticket did so poorly? Um, and then they say, you know, what do you think this is going to mean for your husband? And she says, well, I don't see how he can help but getting fat because he won't have any exercise. Um, And it's that, that sort of, you know, those moments of stickiness happen whenever she she's realizing that, you know, whatever some change in Franklin's circumstance might have implications for this arrangement that they've worked out. But she always comes around because I think she can see the ways that her husband's character has deepened. And that yes. he is going to be this really effective change agent for the causes that she believes in.
0: There's a, a lovely mo- moment in the HBO movie Warm Springs. And I mentioned to you before, I've had Kenneth Branagh on the show. and, and uh, but, but they ask Eleanor Roosevelt, um, do you believe that your husband's disease has affected his brain? And she takes a moment and just says, Yes, and I'm sure it's a fictional moment, but it conveys so much about what that dynamic was. I I do want to ask you about his return to political life after adjusting and and beginning to adapt. Um, I've always been fascinated by his return to politics. And one of the most famous things about him in in his public life was that he was very secretive about the illness. The whole world knew he had polio, but this was in an era where if the president told the news, don't take pictures of me in a wheelchair, miraculously, uh, the news complied. I think there's only one piece of film footage that actually shows FDR in a wheelchair from his entire presidency. And I'm curious what you learned about that whole period and what it was like for him in terms of uh, maintaining this illusion for the cameras maintaining not so much an illusion but not letting the cameras see
2: the toll that polio had taken on him. I mean, there was certainly a lot of sort of image making and deception, and it was a high stakes affair um you know i I laughed at at one point in the in the Trump presidency um Donald Trump being you know the great student of history that he is, oh yeah, uh, talked about <laughs> uh Being shown around the White House and seeing, you know, the places where FDRs were had had ramps installed. And he said Trump said because he didn't ever want anyone to carry him. And I laughed when I heard that because FDR had people carry him all the time. Um, He was totally comfortable with that. What he didn't want was for people to see him being carried. So in the the book, I describe some of these sort of really hair raising scenes where he's getting carried up several flights of stairs to give a speech and he arrives and he's covered in sweat because it's been, you know, up this tight back staircase so that people don't see it. He gets dangled down onto stages um, and it's all to keep people from from having that sort of image of of weakness. And I think, though, that, you know, now and weakness is something we think about a lot you know in today's politics um it's a preoccupation of of a lot of political characters and it was it was something that that fdr was really attuned to there was a, the people again who were sort of most sophisticated about this at the time were yeah. other polio patients yeah. i found this essay that uh, a warm springs patient wrote around the time of fdr's inauguration where they were talking about this whole sort of issue of what people knew knew about fdr's uh polio and and, and how his paralysis affected him and that that the, the author of that piece said about about as he put it able-bodied people he said perhaps they cannot understand that the paralysis which has made us weaker animals has also made us stronger men damn <laughs> <Whew>.
0: <laughs> If you're just joining us, we are talking about the amazing new book, Becoming FDR, with author Jonathan Darman. I I, want to ask you about his return to the political stage. Uh, He he sits out for most of the Roaring Twenties, coping, figuring out his life. He had, of course, this incredible family wealth. He didn't have to worry about getting a job. But 1928, he comes back um, as a what my grandfather who voted for him used to call a cripple and the whole world knew it. Um, they didn't see the pictures of the wheelchair, but they knew it nonetheless. And he comes back in 1928 to run for governor of New York. How had his character changed
2: and, and how had his political abilities changed? Um, it, it had changed a lot and it was it was clear very quickly. I think um, the pre-polio FDR was not someone who had sort of the great rhetorical ability that we associate yes, with him. It's really true. He didn't have this sort of knack for timing. Um, and the knack for timing and strategic thinking really plays this quite poignant role in the 1928 campaign. He doesn't want to run for governor in the fall of 1928. Al Smith, who was the sitting governor of New York, was the Democratic candidate uh, for president that year. And he wanted FDR to run as the Democratic ticket because he thought it would help him uh, win New York State. And so he's sort of applying all this pressure to FDR. And FDR resists it because he really thinks, against the evidence, that if he can just have a couple more years of spending most of his time at Warm Springs and really working on his rehabilitation, that he's going to be able to walk again. He and really Smith, thought it, right? He really believed it. He did think it. He didn't. He didn't really have basis, and his doctors would not have agreed that he had basis to think it. But I think in his mind, he believed that that was within the realm of possibility, and that's important because Smith keeps applying pressure, and ultimately he enlists Eleanor Roosevelt. To help him uh, apply pressure to Franklin, um, and and Franklin sort of sees that there's this opportunity. Um, he he's very aware after polio that you, you you only have a limited number of chances, and that this might be his best chance to return to the political stage, and he he grabs that chance, but it's really with the idea that in so doing he's going to be giving up his shot of ever walking again unaided. Wow.
0: Just fascinating. I'm curious, what was the level of physical pain and discomfort that Roosevelt would have to go through on a daily basis and hide from not just the the viewers in the press, but everyone around him? I mean... I know the metal braces on his legs allowed him to stand unaided, but not without tremendous discomfort. What was his level of physical pain when he would go and do these appearances and, and of course, running for president for grueling times?
2: Yeah, and he really didn't spare himself um in a lot of ways i think he was so focused on this idea of combating the the image of of weakness which was very much something that people talked about and people used against him in the 1932 campaign um that he wanted to do all these sort of you know grand heroic things like so he Flies into to accept the Democratic nomination in 1932, the first time a candidate had ever done that. Um, And and it was in an era where, where flight was not comfortable for anyone, let alone someone who doesn't have the full use of his legs. Physical pain was really bad in the first sort of nine months after his after his polio i think from that point on it's it's not that he's in excruciating pain all the time it's that it's just a sort of there's there's an endless number of exhausting ordeals that are involved um with 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 having this disability and it's psychologically taxing for him he didn't like wearing braces in the years that i write about because they're just sort of this constant reminder that this disability is is permanent you know steel is permanent um, and I think that that sort of war on him. And he has a really hard time sort of reconciling with that. But it's it's really quite a lot to think about all that he had to do to put up with. And there's this moment at the end of his presidency when he goes when he comes back from the Yalta conference, he's he's, you know, weeks away from death. This is this is the spring of 1945. And he goes to sort of report to the Congress after reporting back after coming back from Yalta and he gives a speech. And he says, you'll forgive me for not standing, uh, but I've, I've traveled all this distance. And that's about as, as open as FDR ever was as president on the effects that his that his disability had on him.
0: I, I found it fascinating how he had to develop so many new skills that made him a better politician. You know, his better use of oratory, um, his timing, his uh, his strategic thinking. As you pointed out, you know, he in many ways, it seems that he became this compassionate, more empathetic man out of necessity. It made him a better candidate. And it also made him the leader that America needed, especially in the area in the era of radio. Um, How did his transformation make him the ideal president for this country during the Depression and the Great War in the age of radio?
2: Yeah, I mean, the you know, it's another thing that was surprising to me about looking at the pre-polio FDR is he was not a particularly great speaker. We think of, of Franklin Roosevelt as the sort of classic, you know, presidential orator, but he wasn't a great speaker in his early career. <laughs> That's what career. blew He's-
0: my mind about your book, blew my mind, because the guy that we all know is not the guy he started out to be.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, people liked the sort of effect that he had in a room, but it was because he would sort of run around and shake a lot of hands and be and be quite energetic. But no one would really remember anything that he said. He's his years of convalescence are the years where where radio totally takes off. The first radio broadcast news broadcast is broadcasting the results of that 1920 election that he loses as the vice presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there are this sort of by the time he returns to the political stage in 1928, radio is this like godlike force. You know, he's he, he he's sitting in a room with all the other politicians in the 1928 on, on election night in 1928. He's sitting in a room with all of the other New York state politicians sort of waiting for the radio announcers to to, to deliver the results. So you, in just that period of time, it sort of takes over everything. And he changes with it. He, he, he's just a, a master at the sort of cadence of radio. And yeah. he understands, I think, that people want to have things explained to them. Um, you know, when I listen to the fireside chats or I read the fireside chats, if you look at them, they're not soaring oratory. They're, no. they're actually quite dense and detailed. And when I see that, I see someone who knows what it's like to be in a bad way. And you want all the detail that you can about how things are going to get there from get better from there. A patient in a hospital who's listening to a doctor talking. Yes. He had faith in his audience that they could understand what he was saying because they were interested and it mattered to them. And he just needed to explain it in as much detail as he could.
0: And he knew how to use silence. He knew how to take a pause and land a pause in a speech and how to let a sentence just land and sit there and be absorbed. What's incredible about the fireside chats is you hear the upper crust in his voice. He's this incredibly posh speaker, but there's a warmth behind it that makes him accessible. I mean, it's 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 not even like Obama because Obama, you know, was able to be academic and congenial at the same time, but not the kind of warmth FDR had always. I'm curious in your research for the book, what did you come to consider as the greatest misconception we have about this man?
2: Well, I do think that we, we sort of misunderstand um, a lot about what people knew about polio because, you know, we've talked about the things that he did to just, you know, conceal and deceive. And that's all true, but it, I think that the polio story was actually really important to his political identity, particularly in the years when he's first making his comeback, first in the 1928 governor's race and then in his 1932 presidential campaign. People who had read anything about Franklin Roosevelt over the prior 10 years knew that he had polio and they knew that he had lost the ability to walk. Now, they had been they had been fed a lot of spin and falsehoods about how, you know, he was he was, you know, know, days away uh, from from a complete and full recovery. But they understood that he that he was, you know, that he had that he had suffered through this. And I think it actually was a really important part of his political identity when he starts making a comeback, because it's supposed to be this sort of inspiring comeback story. And so when you think about it, how, you know, that aristocrat that you were talking about, how he can say to the country, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I mean, that is a very sort of audacious thing to say if you're a privileged child of Hyde Park, to say to people in 1933 who can't put food on the table. But it landed. People believed it because they knew that he believed it, and he believed it because he had lived it in his own life. Paid the cost to be the boss. I mean, it, it, what does it
0: take for a man, you're right, a millionaire at birth, to tell an entire nation in a Depression to just cast off all fear, but he had the conviction. He. It's hard to imagine another president being able to command this much respect, especially to get you know elected four times. And even people who aren't fans of the New Deal uh, generally don't dislike Franklin Roosevelt, um, he's remembered very fondly across the political aisle. And what I love about this book and the story you've told is that this is a a story that can inspire anyone of any background, any nationality. What, what is the most profound lesson you think, sir, for people out there who not just struggling with a, a disability or a medical problem, but anyone out there struggling against something seemingly insurmountable, who feels like it's the end of their life. What lesson is there for those of us going through that hour of darkness in the story of FDR's transformation,
2: I think it's very simple. I think it's that that hope is possible, um, and is and hope is real. You know, um, I was I was working on this book during the pandemic and during the 2020 election and its aftermath, and um, I would on certain days look at FDR and running for president in the darkest days of the depression, and, and look for the, to the words that he said for kind of solace. When he accepted the Democratic nomination in 1932, he said, out of every crisis, mankind rises with some share of greater knowledge, of higher decency and of purer purpose. And I would on certain days, like after January 6th, feel like, man, I hope that's true, because you know it can be really hard to believe sometimes that that higher decency and greater knowledge and purer purpose are going to emerge in the world we live in today. But I think the world that FDR lived in was, in a lot of ways, more frightening than ours. And people believed him when he said it. And they believed him because he believed it. And so it sort of changed the way that I think about how we should evaluate political leaders today who talk about hope. I think a really essential question we should ask is, When did they need it in their own life? And what did they learn from that?
0: Brilliant. Jonathan Darman is the author of Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. It's a great book. It's a great gift as well. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for writing this. It's really great.
2: Oh, thanks so much, John.
0: What a pleasure. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be open to phones uh, up until midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific, with Keith Price joining us in the next hour at 866-997-4748. We'll be right back.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or
0: I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy
2: in every journey.
1: This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
0: Welcome back. We're not a breaking news show because we air at what the fuck o'clock, but um, a package has exploded. On the campus of Northeastern University in Boston, a staffer has been injured. Authorities say that another suspicious package was found near the city's Museum of Fine Arts on the outskirts of the campus. Uh, As of now, um, the FBI has said that they are aware of two packages that have exploded at Holmes Hall at Northeastern University. Again, there are no deaths. There's been one injury. The FBI is working with Boston Police They say it's too early to say whether it's terrorism or not. The only thing they can confirm is this was nowhere near as big a bomb as Lindsey Graham's abortion ban announcement today. Hey, it's Keith Price, everybody. Ah! Comedian, actor, writer, broadcast extraordinaire, the first openly gay black radio host at Sirius XM, catches wonderful Broadway podcast Keith Price's Curtain Call, joining us on a Tuesday. Comedy Daddy, welcome.
5: Hey, 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 how you doing? I'm pretty good, how (laughs) are you? (laughs) I'm just laughing at Lindsey trying to just – he's all up in you girls. He's just going after the ladies.
0: Man, can you believe (laughs) it? Hello, ladies. (laughs) A few months ago, he tries to have a 20-week abortion ban that all the Republicans love. doesn't Uh go anywhere. Now he tries a 15 – now after after Roe is repealed and they realize how unpopular it is, Mm -hmm. Lindsey tries to have a 15-week abortion ban – and no Republicans touch it, and they've all been criticizing him all day. It's just beautiful to see how much uh, – it's just
5: – I want the show to be Everybody Hates Lindsay. That's, that's the sitcom. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is that he's let himself be – he can fall prey to this because he has chosen to be such a flip-floppy, wishy-washy, yes, can't figure out what it is that he wants – whose side he's really going to be on. And since he can't do that, then you suffer – from these horrible ass choices and so you know what double down girl look what happened no well now now she's wondering what she's going to do come 2018 if you know we can get a better majority in the senate because honey her party was going to be over
0: I think Lindsay's going to have to drown his sex and drown his his sorrows in really hot sex with lots and lots of women because he ain't gay. You know, he said he ain't gay. So uh, he's a ragingly, ragingly heterosexual man who will drown his sex, drown his sorrows in sex with groupies uh, like ladies. He's out there,
5: ladies. He's
0: he's on the prowl, girls. Oh, yeah. Watch (laughs) out. Those pheromones right there. Keith, uh, we have a lot of callers. There's a lot to talk about in the world. Uh, yes. Fuckery is afoot, but I got to ask you something. You're my, you're the official Broadway ambassador for serious sure. and progress. This funny girl show on Broadway it, it, is this play cursed? Is Fanny Bryce haunting <laughs> her own revival? Because first off, they they launch it right with the original <sighs> cast and Beanie Feldstein and, and Jane Lynch was on it, and Jane does this show a lot. And uh, and I had to I had to cancel my interview with Jane because I had COVID. So that was the first sign. Then right. apparently the whole production went fakakta and. and Didn't wasn't received that well. Uh, Beanie Mm -hmm. left, and then Leah Michelle took over. Former star of Glee. They tell me. Yes. I'm Gen X, so I, I, I. For me, Glee. They tell me it's Glee, and I'm like, okay, I I know what that is. (laughs) I know what Glee. I've, (laughs) I've read the scrolls. I know what Glee was. So I heard she got great reviews, and it was going to be a whole new jolt of life for this Broadway revival. <laughs>
5: what happened right away as soon as and she took the stage? Then she tested positive for COVID, and is going to be out for the next ten shows. Bump bump da. Now some would say that this is you know just horrible. What the chances of this happening? The coincidence, you know, because COVID at one point COVID was going around a lot through the cast because oh the guy that played vicky arnstein uh rameen who's by the way gorgeous woof anyway Ramin karimlu was like one of the bigger names out of the mix that i remember getting covid early on and so it kind of was having a moment and Uh (laughs) and and she now got it but you got to say something fierce about the fact that jane lynch Jane Lynch, who had worked with Leah Michelle for several years on the show Glee, and had an entire studio and space like, you know, a trailer and everything to hide from her, to get away what? from her energy if if need be oh we really don't that's, know, a allegedly.
0: that's a thing that's a thing
5: well you know allegedly and then when they announced that she was coming to, to Leah michelle to do the role jane lynch not only left but she left early because it's like she did like those animals during the tsunami you know the ones that know it's coming so you see them going <laughs> up the hill at first and you're just standing there looking going why is the water line going back so far they <sighs> she, she All right. Me, out of there, baby. L- let
0: me just say I'm 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 a snob about many things, but I, I'm not yes. a snob about glee. It, mm-hmm. it's it's not my thing. Um right. I love I love Jane, but I knew Jane before she did glee and, and I I, yes. I uh, I've I've watched episodes. I get it. It's cool. I love anything that turns kids on to musical theater and, and doing yes. theater in school. Not my thing. Uh is is this woman supposed to be difficult or is this just a, yeah. a rumor? Is this her rap?
5: Well, let me just put it to you this way. I interviewed someone many, many years ago, Puff Puff, who worked with this young lady and she worked with her when she was on the show Spring Awakening. That was her big Broadway oh, smash yeah, I loved it. thing. I love that play. And the, the person I worked with was like, talked to, you know, knew somebody in the cast, knew somebody. And it said, what was it like working with her? And they said, well, let me just put it to you this way. She definitely was an only child and <laughs> just left it at that. It was like, you know, mm. because, you know, the stories of some of them are legendary and they're like, you know, recently there was a whole thing in, you know, t- Twitter sphere of, like a year or so ago about how she behaved when she was on the show Glee. And it was confirmed by a lot of other people that worked on the show about her. And I so see. it's not it's not like. You know, being scandalous rumors, but it's interesting because, you know, Broadway made a room for her to have this moment, you know, to come back and it kind of got tripped by COVID. So some would say, you know, bad luck. Some might say karma. But in the end, the show itself, you know, it's it is really, you know, like I enjoyed the show when I saw it. it, you know, it wasn't meant to change my life but i didn't go in (laughs) expecting barbara so i'm all right you know what i mean like (laughs) right you know but leah michelle you know people i i know actually had some friends who were going to see her they had tickets to see her over the weekend and because she wasn't in the shows they they sold their tickets back because that was the reason to go yeah so i mean it's not a good look to have happen so soon because they were hoping that this was going to be a nice wave to carry it but you know, the, this might be the end of Funny Girl. I was <laughs> like, Music Man announced uh, a closing in like spring of 2023. So, oh. it's, but I mean, you know, they're way off down the line, but I, I feel so like, like six months from now more. they're
0: closing. They're they have to, okay they're letting
5: you know. So you can let us up
0: know. Hugh well, Jackman. I actually want I, that's actually one I want to see because I, I, I love that play and I'm curious yeah. to see Hugh Jackman in it. Keith, how can people see you live doing what you do?
5: Oh, my God. Why? Well, my next upcoming gig will be closet cases at Stonewall Inn next Monday night, eight o'clock. No, seven o'clock at the Stonewall Inn, home world our gay liberation. That's the home of life.
0: Yes, it so is. It's going to be
5: fun. It's a bunch of comedians standing around telling our stories about when we came out of the closets. and. Oh, what a great show. You know, and everybody's kind of various journeys to get to be who we are. So it's kind of fun. Can it's I get fun.
0: booked on it to talk about when I came out as confused? Because that's that's my orientation officially. I'm, well, I, I'd I think, love to. you
5: know, Sean Hollenbach loves <laughs> a challenge. Seela <laughs> in Texas.
0: I can give you like 30 seconds. You're our last caller of the night.
1: Hey, John. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind Southern lady. And yes. uh, I would just like to send out to Ken Starr, wherever he is tonight. I would just like to say from a family with a few doctors, ICU nurses, and surgery nurses, I want to say, oops, sorry, fucker, and that's all I wanted to say.
0: There you go. Well, all right then. <laughs> may 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 Ken Burns rest in the peace and love he denied so many others. And Ken go no, no, Ken Burns is wonderful. Ken Sta- Ken Burns is good to live long may you run. Love him. And in fact, yeah. tomorrow night on the show, you can hear back to back two of our recent interviews with Ken Burns to get you all excited <laughs> for our first town hall with America's greatest documentary filmmaker coming up later this week. Keith, Ooh, nice. thank you so much. Thank you to Jonathan Darman by Becoming F D R. Thank you, Thea Harper, and of course Thank you, Chris House. I'll thank you all for listening. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your call. We'll be back tomorrow night. Keep it tuned to SiriusXM Progress. Peace.